Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Well, this morning, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. We'll be in Psalm chapter 5 this morning. I'll have the opportunity to uh, uh, preach again this year, and it will be in Psalm chapter 6. So don't be too surprised. If you see this this person, I will be teaching out of the Psalms. Um, Psalm chapter 5. I'm going to begin right above verse 1. It says this, To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield." Psalm 5 starts out with this statement, to the choir master, for the flutes, the Psalm of David. When we open our Bibles to a passage that appears just so very foreign to us, it might feel more formidable than the prospect of of climbing up a mountain. Right right at the start, you might think, what do do I even do with this? I'm I'm not David. I've never composed anything before. I can't even compose something to tap my foot to let alone something for the, for the flutes. You might think, I'm just, I'm just so far removed from this. I'm no king. I rule next to nothing. I have a hard enough time ruling my own self. How do I even start to relate? Think of one of Jesus's parables. Okay, after reading it and, and after getting the explanation from Jesus himself, sometimes we still go, but what does it mean? You open up one of Paul's letters. You read about people drinking too much communion wine. And you think, I've never been tempted to get drunk at the Lord's table. And my, my church uses grape juice. They, they just remove that temptation completely. Like, why? why? Why is this? Not, not why we use grape juice. Why, why is it that 
we think maybe the Bible just isn't for us. Well, one great starting place, if we haven't done this already, is to go to a godly mentor or a pastor for help in our Bible study. It, it is vital that we know who the kings of Israel were because it sets straight who the one true king is. It is vital that we understand and interpret Jesus' parables as he interpreted them because his way is the only way. We might be tempted to think that the Bible is not for us because it was just, it was just written so long ago. There's just too much to unpack from different cultural or historical backgrounds. But this is not the case. The Bible is about God and his incredible ability to take human evil and use it for good. Over thousands of years, God's spirit moved specific people to write the scriptures in a specific language. It was meant for them. And in God's plan, it was meant for them to pass on to us. Jesus did not rise from the dead in order to tell his disciples to make more disciples for a few generations and see how it pans out, but to the very end. All 150 Psalms target the next generation. They are the original and best next generation prayer ministry in the life of the church. And here we are this morning in the long historical line, now on our way to Christ, passing on to the next generation the message of God's news for sinners. This morning, in one, in one small moment here in God's providential story, we are here in the Psalms, the Bible's perfect prayer book. And, and like many Psalms, Psalm 5 doesn't reveal too much about the background. Though it, this one tells us that it would, be, it would be written to be accompanied with a musical instrument. Well, we are no longer knowledgeable of what this sounded like when sung. We have what matters. We have the lyrical content. One Bible scholar said this about the Psalms. The lack, the lack of specific background details in many of the Psalms is important as it enables us to identify all the more closely with the Psalms. Because they are general in character, we can use them so readily and apply them to our own specific need. David's precise situation is left out of this Psalm and so we are all the more easily pulled up into it. Within this psalm, we do know he had enemies on all sides. Uh, in, in different ways, perhaps, we've been surrounded too. Whether that's being backed into the corner of our own self-accusations, uh, verbally accosted by an enemy, perhaps torn down by a close friend. Outnumbered, David first went to the only one he knew who could change this outcome. Look at verse three. In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice and wait. Psalm five opens in the same place that we open our eyes each and every morning, our beds. And Psalm five doesn't wait for us to return to our normal beds. It can be a finely feathered, it can be a tough headrest. Any, any pillow that we lift up our weary head from will do. And this morning, we find ourselves awake Maybe some of us are still waking up and we're looking up at mountainous terrain. We're at Psalm 5's base camp. At the summit, we will see that it is God's presence that is the secret of the Psalms. God's presence is where we enjoy the provision of his unending love, his skillful leadership, and his powerful protection. Before starting our trek, we find that we are supplied by a king with all that we need for life and godliness. Look at verse one. 
Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. In the, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. God addresses, David addresses God with reverence as my king and my God. But, but the spectrum of emotion that he experiences here, it's like a needy child pleading to his parents for help. From beginning to end, God provides for his people. But this provision does not exclude pain. David groans by muttering words under his breath. These inmost thoughts are only heard by David and the Lord. But his groaning quickly grows into an outcry. He, he ranged from inaudible prayer as well as direct and loud appeals to God. And at the end of Psalm 5 and verse 12, we see the provision David was seeking from his God and his king. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. What do, what do kings do for their kingdoms? They provide protection. They shield their people from the enemy. God's shield of favor meant the impossible would work out for David. Having God's favor meant the pain and frustration of it all would be worth it. That somehow the evil against David would be turned to good. This is divine provision and divine favor. Verse three, in the morning, while, while David's jumbled words were, were barely understandable, he acted on God's provision by preparing the sacrifice. Just, just as all the kings of Israel were commanded to do, David had read and copied over the law. Back, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 29, God tells Moses what will happen in Israel each day. This is what is to happen. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Once these, these sacrifices were completed, God would meet with Israel where he says this, there at the entrance of the tent of meeting, I will meet with the people of Israel. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. So what is, what is King David doing early in the morning? He read his Bible, he wrote it down, and he did it. His actions spoke. I take God at his word that God intends to dwell here with us. So then in the morning, I prepare the sacrifice. I watch, trusting that God will provide. And this is the outcome David desired. Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David wasn't, wasn't looking around his, his bedchambers for a stroke of, of poetic brilliance. He wasn't looking around and going, I need some metaphor for, for God protecting us. And well, there's my shield. Okay, there we go. There's the shield. No, shield, the shield language is biblical language. David had read of God's promise to Abraham that God would be a shield to Abraham and that the blessings God gave to Abraham would be passed down to God's people, Israel. The, the Psalms carry no fluff. They are rich with biblical imagery. This imagery echoes God's word 
and looks to the revealing of God's Messiah. So words like sacrifice or shield are biblically infused lyrics. Even even the word bless here in verse 12 reaches all the way back to the garden at creation where God blessed the man and the woman, telling them to fill the earth with God's image, to rule with God's wisdom. God chose to bless Abraham and his descendants, telling them what he told Adam and Eve. Multiply, rule over the earth, spread my glory across creation. And King David was an inheritor of this promise, and he trusted that his God and king would provide with his very presence. And many years later, the promise did come to pass. There came a king from the line of David who provided the Holy Spirit to his people. And what does the word tell us as believers? That the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This, this is kingly provision. It's powerful. It's effective. It's supernatural aid for each morning until the end. So we see the Lord's provision for David. Church, we see the Lord's provision for us. Let's begin the climb. God's joy and our joy, verse 4 and verse 11. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. In verse three, David has prepared the daily sacrifice for sins. Why? Why Why is that? Verse four tells us, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That, That four in verse four is because. From verse three into verse four, David is saying, I prepared this sacrifice because God hates evil. He will not abide it. Scholars have indicated that the Hebrew word here translated dwell or visit, it emphasizes the most tentative and impermanent of visitations. Because God is so incompatible with evil, even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. David prepared a sacrifice because he was aware that before the addressing before addressing the badness of the evildoers who were out there, he first needed to recognize the evil in here. He recognized he needed to first address his own sin. God God had installed David as king in Israel, but but David's status didn't exempt him from needing his sins covered. It, it It was really the moments in his life where he forgot about this, that David lost his footing. Verse four, for you are not a God who delights in evil. And delight would, it seems like a strange word to use. Of course, God doesn't delight in evil. And and that's the point. This use of a positive word serves to highlight the wickedness of sin. God doesn't delight in evil. God delights in God. God delights in his people and in our worship of him. He delights in showing his grace and for saving the lost. This this provision God has given to us, God's provision for sin, it upsets the evil powers of this world. The devil devil hates when we gather together and have joy in God. Author David Mathis wrote the following. He said this, at best, most Christians spend about 1% of their waking hours in corporate worship. Here's the math. If you sleep each night about seven hours, and the weekly gathering of your local church is about 75 minutes, so 
So for us, it's 10.30 a.m. to about 11.45 a.m., and you attend faithfully, essentially every Sunday. That makes for roughly 1% of your 120 waking hours each week. Our spiteful enemy hates that you would consider for a second to spend just 1% of your week worshiping and hearing God's word proclaimed with the people of God. He, he will throw every, every kind of good, wonderful, grand excuse your way to keep you from joining together as the body of Christ. Why? Why is this? Well, it's because preaching exposes satanic lies about God. The preaching of the gospel obliterates the lie that God withholds, that God is not good, that God does not have our best interest in mind. Evil delights in creatively blocking you from praising and glorifying God along with the body of Christ. But there is good news. More, more than the devil hates that a mere one or, or maybe 2% of your life spent worshiping with the church and hearing the word proclaimed, more than this, God hates evil. He hates evil because he is glorified when we find all our hope and help from him, from his presence. Look at verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So you have verse 4, God cannot stand the sight of evil. And you have verse 11, God protects his people for their good, for his glory. And that's, and that's interesting. It's interesting because David describes God's holiness here without using the word holy. One Old Testament scholar said this of this passage, God's holiness has two sides, hate for evil and relentless goodness. Relentless goodness, meaning that from the beginning, God's intent was and still is to bless his creation. Justice and mercy, therefore, are not two competing characteristics of God, but are two inseparable consequences of his holiness. Relentless goodness is the flip side of incompatibility with evil. God hates what harms his people, and he demands what is for our good. You know, if, you're, if you're served a, a cold drink on, on a hot day, Somebody says, here you go, enjoy. Your gut reaction is never, how dare you? How dare you tell me to enjoy this beverage? Likewise, it's not strange when God's word compels us to run to him for salvation and run to him for joy. Verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So faith family, never be put off by God's command for you to put on joy. God is unrelenting in his goodness. God hates sin because he loves seeing his people at their best, living life by faith in full submission to him. Verse 11, spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Christian, as you, as you change from, from one degree of glory to another in the light of God's salvation, you, you will not be able to help but exult in God. When, when you exult, it's when you discover that your side has won. You exult, meaning you have extreme bliss in victory. Marking the end of World War II, May of 1945, V-Day was a day of exaltation 
That, that baseball team from Chicago that lost for like 100 years in a row and they won like one time, there was some spontaneous exulting in the triumph. Hands spread to the sky, happiness, pure bliss. No one had to tell them to raise their hands. We exalt God, E-X-A-L-T, when we praise him for who he is. We exult in God, E-X-U-L-T, when we see that our abundant sin was removed because of God's abundant love. As we grow in our knowledge of the hell we deserve compared with the salvation that we do have in Jesus, we, we don't need to consult a, a biblical theological dictionary in order to make sure that we're catching the true drift of the word exult. We're just gonna do it. We're just going to live it. And we will not be able to stop exulting in the Savior's victory. So this is God's joy and our joy. Hating sin, delighting in all of who he is and all that he has done for his glory and our good. Let's continue the climb. Verse five, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Mankind is abundant in steadfast sin, almost in polar opposite to how abundant the Lord is in his steadfast love, except for, praise God, his, his love is greater than even our sin. The word of God is clear. God hates evildoers and he destroys them. Verse five and six, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. And at the end of verse 10, we see that God's enemies are not just random rebels. There are no random rebels. They have rebelled against God, offending his majesty, his glory, his infinite worth. They did not give him the glory that is due his name or the thanks that is due to his name. And, and what type of rebellion specifically is happening here? Well, it's, it's, mainly, it's mainly from the mouth. Scholar Peter Craigie notes that ancient Israel was an age in which the more sophisticated sins of speech abounded. The principal characteristics of evildoers in this psalm is to be found in their speech. They're boasters. They speak falsehood. There's no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave. They speak flattery. When it comes to this, this flattering tongue at the end of verse 9, this tongue is skilled in making words smooth over the jagged edges of lies in order to make what is false sound pleasant. It's like in, in Proverbs chapter 26, smooth talk from an evil heart is like glaze on cracked pottery. It's just, it's just a cover-up. The, these mouthy rebels are really good at making bad sound good. Another uh, commentator remarked this. With such people, all the resources of speech, mouth, throat, and tongue combine to achieve and to conceal the designs of the heart. The methods are those of the serpent in Eden. And, and the devil, we know, did battle in the garden where he killed quickly using, using only what? His words, sweet sounding to the ear, venomous to the soul. Another uh, author that I read connected this for me with, with the, the open grave throat in verse nine with uh, the book of Jeremiah. 
He said, it is the grim picture used in Jeremiah to express murderous efficiency in battle. That passage in Jeremiah says this, their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. Meaning, if you get in range of this kind of archer, you're as good as dead. Psalm 5, 9 is saying, if you let sinister, godless words come near to your soul and impress something upon you, you're as good as gone. Psalm 5, 9's open tomb tongue isn't just applicable to the liars and boasters out there. It also applies to the rebel. The rebel, the boaster, the liar within. And God hates this. So if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might think, well, well God, God can't stand even a hint of sin, so I guess he can't stand me. Glad you could tell me what I had already gathered. Consider this. God hates your rebellion against him because your rebellion against him is spiritual suicide. Your rebellion against him is offensive to his majesty. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 5. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. David, David is once again praying the Bible. He knows that the law of God given to Moses taught that obedience leads to a blessed life and disobedience leads to a cursed life. Our own God-denying wisdom fails us. David would have read about Pharaoh who fell by Pharaoh's own bad counsel. He was an atheistic hubris behind the mocking of Noah. The, the people drowned in the flood because they were drowning in the wisdom of their own counsel. Let them fall by their own counsel was like David praying, God, let evil run its course in the fabric you have woven into your creation. If God did not hate our rebellion against him, God would be calling evil good and good evil. If God did not hate both sin and sinner, then he would not be good. Say, saying God hates the sin, but not the sinner is like saying God loves his son's righteous deeds, but not his son. It doesn't work. Non-Christian, your rebellion is an offense to God. And what you need is what God is glad to give, salvation. You need salvation from God's wrath. You need salvation from your sin that is causing you misery on top of misery. And if you're seeing that for the first time today, then, then praise God. You are not alone. You're in here with a bunch of other sinners who need God's grace. The promise of the good news that we proclaim here each week is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has removed the endless heaps of disobedience from us. And God has replaced it with his son's hard-won obedience. This is, this is the great exchange. We bring our filthy deeds, that's both our bad deeds and our good deeds, and God exchanges in his grace our sin for his son's righteousness. So repent, bring your sin to him, believe in him, and Jesus will set you free. Psalm 5, 7 through 8, we've reached, we've reached the peak of the mountain, God's presence. Look in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house 
I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So here at the, at the summit of Psalm 5, we have God's presence. David enters into the house of God, meaning he communes with God, more fully aware of God's presence in this world. Let's first consider verse 8, lead me. We, we need God's leadership because if we do not have it, we will fall. Lead me because of my enemies. As in, I will fall prey to sin unless you, O Lord, and you alone lead me. In his, in his moments of clarity, David knew he was never the one to outsmart his foes, whether it was a, a great lion or, or the great Goliath. In each of those moments, David received supernatural aid, and he was fully aware of it. David needs, needed God's skillful leadership to set his path right, or he would fail. When, when we are on the edge of temptation, hounded by sin's real felt pleasure, we need breakthrough. We need God's direct leadership in our lives. We need the influence of his word to take charge over what we think works best. A, a surrounded David was a David who knew there was no option three or option C. If God didn't lead him, David recognized that he would not be able to lead himself out from under his enemy's grasp. If God does not lead us, we, we are as good as gone. Theologian J.R. Packer refers to this psalm in his book about uh, God's will for our lives. It's an excellent book. Uh, there, there's this interconnection he makes with multiple psalms, uh, passages on God's leading, and then twice where Paul speaks of being led by the Holy Spirit in Romans and Galatians. And Packer writes this, um, that, that Paul is not teaching, quote, recurring exotic experiences from the Holy Spirit but the reality of lives in which these prayers and the Psalms are fulfilled. Ordinarily, through taking note of what the Bible teaches, accepting advice, and exercising sanctified common sense. So some of us here need to drop the mystical prayer guesswork of God's leadership and embrace the mysterious work of his spirit in our lives mysteriously, the Holy Spirit guides us when we read the word of God, when we hear it preached, when we ask mature believers what they would do if they were in our position. And then, actively relying on God, we act, we make a decision. I, there's mystery here. I, I can't tell you exactly how, how it all works, but I can tell you that God uses his word and his people to lead us in his righteousness. But drop, drop the mystical, okay? Just want to repeat by this. Drop the mystical. If you, if you have a coworker, a classmate, a relative who's just terrible to you, they're just terrible to you, you don't need to wait for some mystical sign to minister to them. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who harm you. We don't pray in the Psalm, God, destroy my enemies and help me be a part of that destruction. No, do good to those who harm you. If their bad attitude ruins your day, then you need to see you are basing too much of your attitude in their attitude. Use, use some sanctified common sense. Base your attitude each and every morning within God's attitude. 
and live God's will. Do good to your enemy. Do good to the, to the hard to love. Share the gospel with them. Bring the love of Christ through, through your attitude toward them. It's painful. It's hard. But, but we have to admit that it's not complicated. Verse 8 is our footing at this summit. We are grounded in God's righteous leading. Verse 7 here is like the flagpole that we embrace at the summit. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Now, some of us here have wondered about this. We've wondered about David in the temple uh, because we want to ask the question, what temple? What house? The temple had not yet been built. God God told David that it wouldn't be him building it. It would be David's son, Solomon. But like Abraham and Moses before him, David lived by faith. Faith that God would keep his promises to David and to his offspring forever. Which meant that he trusted that God would build a temple. And he would establish his Messiah from David's line. He he lived in the tension of what theologians call the already but the not yet. As he lived by faith in the presence of God. Of God, And this is the not-so-secret secret of the Psalms. Over and over, the Psalms pull us up into the heights of awareness of God's presence. This is the mountaintop experience for David and all the people of God, to live, to live in his presence with full devotion to him. David's acknowledgement of God's steadfast love rehearses what the biblical authors often refer to. Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses. This is who God has revealed himself to be to us. He says this, as merciful, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So David, David isn't taking poetic license to depict God in verse 7. He's praising God once again for what God has shared about himself. God is abounding in steadfast love. When when David entered God's presence through his abundant love, it means that David took God seriously. Going to God on the basis of God's character is the confession that God has made a way for us and that he is actively working in this world. Taking God's love and leadership seriously means we trust him like a child trusts their parents to clothe them and give them a place to sleep at night. Verse 7, God loves us. Verse 8, God leads us. Verse 11, God protects us. And, And for what reason? So that we would enter his house. So that we would go before him and live before his presence. His presence is everywhere already. But but would we acknowledge it? Would we recognize that he is everywhere? We do this to bring glory to God. So David lived in this already, but not yet, and so do we. But we have a greater benefit than David. David lived waiting and watching for the Messiah, and that Messiah has been revealed. So we live in a different already, but not yet. The only Savior and true Lord of this world, Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilled all that the holy temple pointed to. We now have direct access to the Father, fellowship with God's Spirit, who indwells us. Christian, this this is for you. And we look forward to the not yet of uninterrupted fellowship with God. 
Let's consider some final implications of, of Psalm 5 summit. First application, watch your mouth, sing a song. What, what sound does an open grave throat make? This sound. It makes the blessing of God sound like a curse. Anytime we hear the serpent's tongue hissing in our ear, we will hear some variation of this. Okay? It sounds like this. It, it seems like God isn't quite as attentive in his world like the Bible says he is. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like he's holding out on us somewhat? Doesn't that feel just a little unfair? You know, far less virtuous people have made it to where you want to be. Maybe you should take the hint that God isn't going to care for you the way that you know you need to be cared for. And, and he's kind of said this in his word, right? He's, he is okay with you suffering. You realize that, don't you? That, that, that is the sound of an open grave throat. It makes salvation from God's wrath and the gift of new life in Jesus sound like God is removed, far off, ethereal. It makes temporary happiness look like the true sign of God's blessing. It makes the blessing of God sound more like a curse. What is our defense? What is our defense against this, this sweet-sounding deceit? Verse 11, we sing for joy in God's righteous refuge. We fight against the evils of the world, the flesh and the devil, when we sing together of God's character and praise him for his steadfast love. Next, God actively destroys evil. I, I think some of us imagine God to be like the, the bystander who, who films a crime instead of intervening. This, this is a lie. Church, God has never once sat idly as a passerby to the evil committed against you. God is no sideline coach. He does not give his people pointers from the comforts of his throne. Make no mistake, where there is evil in this world, our Father in heaven will handle it. How? How will God handle evil? I, I, see, I see the results more, more results of evil in my, my morning news feed than generations ago saw in a decade. And you say God is handling it? Yes. God, God is way ahead of you in everything. We do not see what God sees. Sovereign sight does not belong to us, but to him. And consider this, it's, it's less that the Bible meets us where we're at. It does, it does do that. But it's more so that we meet Psalm 5 where it has already been, the depraved dangers of life. When you and I are ready to get real with God and his word, we see that we are the ones trying to catch up. It's not God. He has powerfully worked throughout thousands of years of human history. You and me? It's like, it's like we just woke up. Welcome to earth. There's evil here, and God handles it. When, when Psalm 5-6 says that God destroys evil, and it does not look like God is destroying evil, it's not God who needs the reality check. We must recognize the difference between what we think is reality versus how God has actually made reality. 
Theologian G.K. Beale said this of verse six. God is always at work, turning the apparent blessing of the wicked into actual cursing. But, but so-and-so is dishonest and they just keep winning at life. I would not be too sure of that. I, I really wouldn't be sure of that at all. From your vantage point, what looks like blessing to the wicked, there, there's no true blessing there. God destroys evil. There is no wicked deed that God is not already using for the coming judgment on the wicked. And there is no evil act which will remain unhidden because there is nothing we can hide from God. As another theologian has, has put it, evil is vulnerable to truth. Evil is vulnerable to its own instability. And evil is vulnerable to direct divine action. Evil takes part in evil's own undoing. God actively destroys evil. Believe it. Believe it because the Bible says that Jesus was treated as the greatest of evildoers. By his death, he blessed his enemies by becoming a curse in their place. And where was God? God the Father was not on the sidelines while his son was murdered. God the Father was not doing nothing about the cross. God is radically opposed to evil. Church, the father actively handled evil by killing his perfect son in our place. If we stand on the other side of the cross, we never have to wonder if God is handling evil or not. The last application, don't climb down from this mountain. We've come this far, you might think, well, we ended in the middle of Psalm 5. So when are we gonna, when are we gonna go back down? Well, here's my hope. I, I pray that we would be the kind of people who stick it out on the summit of verse seven. And, and what I mean by this is, is Christian, stop, stop looking around for another destination. God is the destination. God is not a stepping stone to make your life more comfortable or pain more palatable. Believer, you have the spirit's indwelling presence in you. Savor this with all of who you are until we see him face to face. As one theologian put it plainly, but helpfully, knowing God is not a means to something else. Knowing God in his word is where we enjoy his unending love, his leadership, his protection, and his provision. When we remain close to him, we take on his characteristics. When we spend time with the Father in his word, our attitude becomes more grateful, our heart more gracious. When we continually seek the Spirit's help, our strength comes from the one who has all strength. We mirror mercy as we call to mind the immeasurable cost of Jesus' death. And as we mature in Christ, we crave more of him. And we grow to hate leaving the summit of his glorious presence. Because in this, we are blessed. We glorify God when we make communion with him the defining center of our lives. So faith family, don't leave don't leave the summit of verse seven. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have seen your incredible mercy in Psalm 5, and we worship you. Be glorified in our worship. We live by faith before you, trusting in the sufficient provision of your presence for anything we face in life, 
even in the face of death. At our most critical time, you sent your son to us. He dropped his defenses so we might be eternally defended. You intervened for us when you chose to forsake your son so that we might never be forsaken. Move us to obedience. Be glorified in our obedience. We trust you. We love you. Amen.